Well, good morning, everybody. You might like to um, flip back to page 226 of your pew Bible. Page 226, because we're continuing to look at the life of David. And last week I explained how in 1 Samuel, in chapters 16 and 17, we actually get three stories that introduce us to David. And story one is Samuel and David. And that's uh, in chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Samuel is directed by the Lord to find David and to anoint him as king over Israel. And we looked at that story last week. Story two is Saul and David. And that's uh, in this 16th chapter, verses 14 to 23. David enters Saul's service as a court musician and then armor bearer. And we're looking at this story this week. And then story three, which we'll look at next week, is Goliath and David. And that's the whole of chapter 17. Uh, David acts so as to end a stalemate between the armies of Israel and the armies of Philistine. And he does that by killing the Philistinian giant warrior named Goliath. And we'll look at that story next week. We also saw last week, and I offered something of an explanation, that these three stories actually don't hang well together. In fact, if we read the stories as a history of David, expecting exact chronological accuracy, the stories jar. What we've got here, almost certainly, are three out of many possible stories that the author could have used to introduce us to someone who's probably the most important character in the Old Testament, after God, of course. And the author has arranged the three stories according to a theological rather than historical agenda. So we need to think about what we're learning as we think about these three stories. And last week, we learned that David was God's choice. Today's story again introduces David as though we hadn't heard of him. But rather than comparing him with his brothers, this week a comparison is offered between him and Saul. If um, you're familiar with the book of 1 Samuel, then you don't need any introduction to Saul. Uh, However, because in this series I'm kind of jumping into the book of 1 Samuel halfway through the book, uh, please let me offer a few words of introduction to this person, Saul. And in order to do that, I'm going to start by telling you something about Samuel. The story of the the book of 1 Samuel begins, it doesn't begin with David, nor does it begin with Saul, but it actually begins with a guy named Samuel. And Samuel was the last of a long line of a particular type of ruler called Judges. Um, And the Judges judged or ruled Israel after Joshua had led God's people into the land of Canaan. And the judges ruled, very roughly, from about 1400 BC through to about 1000 BC, a period of some 400 years. And they were spirit-empowered rulers who ruled for a time, but they weren't kings. And actually, the era of the judges was the darkest time in Israel's history. 
You see, after a good start in the days of Joshua, Israel as a nation forgets more and more about the God who'd saved them out of Egypt and they start to behave more and more like the nations they live amongst in all of their idolatry and ethical depravity. And the book of Judges can be very depressing reading. Three times we read in the book of Judges, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And uh, as you can read for yourself in the book of Judges, that's a recipe for disaster. And so as Samuel begins to get older and older, actually the people, they decide they want a king. And they ask Samuel, Samuel, please anoint for us a king. And again, as I explained last week, this distressed both Samuel and God. Even though a king was even though a king was coming, even though a king was in the plan, their request for a king was wrong for a bunch of reasons. What God's people were actually doing was rejecting God's rule over them as king. And that didn't bother most folk because actually all they wanted was to be just like everyone around them. And all the other people around them were ruled by kings, so they wanted one too. So God gave them their first king, Saul, a gift from God. That being just the kind of leader the people were wanting. And when we first meet Saul, he is a young man. He's taller than everyone else in Israel by a head. He's a head taller than everyone else, and he's a handsome young man, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, we're told. And when we first meet him, he's on a mission. His father has lost a herd of donkeys, and Saul, together with his servant, set out to find the lost donkeys. Now, They cover a huge amount of territory in search of the lost donkeys, quite a trek through the territory of Ephraim, around um, uh, Shalisha, and on through the district of Salaim, but they did not find the lost donkeys, even though they were looking very, very hard. Now, I personally have never been called upon ever to search for lost donkeys, but I, I actually understand from people who know that donkeys create quite an impact. They eat grass, they push over fences, they muddy the roads, and they poo everywhere. Finding lost donkeys is actually not supposed to be that hard. It's not a big ask. It's it's kind of a common sense proposition. Here's a common sense proposition. Um, If you lose your mobile phone, what do you do? If you lose your mobile phone and you think, oh, when was the last time I had it? I know it's here in the house somewhere. What do you do? You ring it from another phone. That's common sense. That's wisdom. That's knowing what to do and doing it. But Saul never finds the lost donkeys. And this is worrying. Oh, okay, okay. So, so, so Saul is a lousy shepherd. Maybe he'll make a great king. But then the narrative gets worse. Saul starts fretting. I mean, they've been away from home for a long time, figures Saul. And and actually, he's worried that Dad will stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about him. Perhaps they should just go home. But the servant 
comes up with a better idea. Hey, maybe we could consult with the prophet Samuel. He'll know where the donkeys are. But Saul counters with another problem. We don't have a gift to offer the seer, to offer the prophet. Again, the servant solves the problem, saying, Hey, look, I've got a quarter of a shekel of silver. That'll do as a gift. And what we see is that Saul fails to take the initiative, cannot solve the problem. It is his servant who is wise. In the traditional Hebrew sense of knowing what to do and being able to do it. It is the servant who proposes the solution and overcomes the obstacles in their way. And this is telling. Okay, so Saul is a lousy shepherd and he's hopeless at problem solving, but perhaps he'll make a great king. Anyway, Samuel the prophet does anoint Saul with oil and the Holy Spirit comes on Saul in power, so far so good. But when it comes to Saul's public coronation ceremony, Saul is nowhere to be found. And they look all over the place. All Israel has gathered. I mean, this is a big thing. Did the star of the show fail to turn up? No, Saul is hiding where? In the baggage. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Saul is hiding with the luggage. Okay, that's not great. But okay, look, Saul's not a great shepherd. He's lousy at problem solving and he's very timid when it comes to public appearances. But perhaps he'll make a great king. Well, Saul isn't, it must be said. He's not a complete disaster. He does show himself able to muster an army and come to the defense of helpless people. He is willing and able to engage the enemies of God's people. He is able to inspire loyalty, and the people of Israel do grow to uh, love him. But as chapters 13, 14, and 15 unfold, we see Saul make some seriously unwise decisions. And the clincher actually comes in chapter 15. Now, I won't explain what his mission is in chapter 15. You can read it for yourself sometime. But Saul is given a mission of immense significance. It's a mission of timeless spiritual importance to the welfare of God's people and therefore also to the welfare of God's saving purpose in the world. It's a really important mission. But Saul mucks it up. How does he muck it up? Well, basically, he mucks it up because he is more worried about what his men think of him than he is worried about what the Lord thinks of him. See, Saul knows that God exists. He knows what God requires. He knows that God has the power to save and the power to destroy. And yet Saul never, never, ever really gets faith. He never really understands what it means to trust God. And so the Lord rejects Saul as king. And as we saw last week, the young man David was anointed with oil by Samuel the prophet and filled in power with the Holy Spirit as king. He was anointed as king because in God's eyes, Israel has no king. Saul has been rejected as king. And I think it's worth to pausing just to think about this rejection, this judgment of God 
on Saul. The phrase that the Bible uses time and time again, it repeats, is Saul is rejected as king. The rejection is always as king. Saul has been filled with the Holy Spirit, a very special gift. He knows God personally, and he knows that he has God's presence, protection, and provision. Saul has not been rejected as a person. He still belongs to God. He still belongs to the people of God. He can keep his relationship with God. He's still got a relationship with God, and he's still got a relationship with God's people. God has forgiven him. He still belongs. It's just that he can't keep his job. God has fired him. But actually, it's the job that Saul wants, not God. And so he holds on to the job with all of his might. What should Saul have done? Well, Saul should have stepped down, obviously. He should have abdicated. He should have offered his resignation. He should have put his son Jonathan in as regent until Samuel found a replacement. He should have retired to the green hills of his tribal inheritance and taken up donkey breeding or something. But no, he holds on. And in holding on to something that God has removed, things get really toxic. In the passage that we read today, we're told a lot about Saul's condition in life. And there are two things that we need to consider. Firstly, that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And secondly, that an evil spirit from the Lord was tormenting him. Okay, first problem first. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. What does that mean? Well, as human beings, we only really ever understand spiritual issues partially, so only a partial answer is possible. But as Christians, we understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, because as Christians, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. It is an extraordinary gift that all Christians receive upon conversion. And I preached on this gift on Pentecost Sunday, which was June the 3rd. And I would encourage you to listen to that sermon if you weren't here with us on that morning. But the gift of the Holy Spirit comes with the responsibility not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman, so to speak, and he respects our wills. If we continue to refuse his will, however and so continue in willful disobedience, he will withdraw. The New Testament makes it plain in several places, such as Hebrews chapter 6, that if we come to faith in Christ, meet Jesus personally through the Holy Spirit, are filled in power with the Holy Spirit, taste the goodness of God's word and the powers of the coming age, and then abandon our faith, we will be worse off than if we'd never come to faith in Christ at all. And this is Saul. Not that he stopped believing in the existence of the Lord. He knows the Lord exists. But rather he has stopped serving the Lord and he stopped trusting the Lord. He stopped living as a forgiven person. And he stopped doing these things because he now lives to serve himself. He is, in effect, worshipping himself as Lord. So that's his first problem. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. 
The second problem is an evil spirit from the Lord was tormenting him. Now, the Old Testament only rarely focuses on demonic activity explicitly. This is one of only a handful of passages in the Old Testament that does this. But in verse 14, the evil spirit is described as being from Yahweh, from the Lord. In verses 15, 16, and 23, it is again emphasized that this evil spirit is from God. What does that mean? Does it mean that, that God has a Holy Spirit and an evil spirit and that we might be filled with either one? Does it mean that there is a fundamental conflict within the very being of God between good and evil? Well, no to both of those questions. No, absolutely not. No, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is pure and holy and good in every absolute way. But our author needs to use this turn of phrase, actually, so as to reassure his original audience so that they don't misunderstand him. If he just said an evil spirit was tormenting Saul, then his first readers may well have thought, along with everyone else around them, that supreme commander Yahweh, that the Lord God Almighty was just one God out of many gods, and that the universe is in such a mess because there's this massive titanic struggle between the forces of good and evil. And sometimes the good guys are winning and sometimes the bad. But actually, no, that's not it at all. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns, let the nations rejoice. God reigns unopposed in unmatched power and authority. He is completely unopposed in his sovereign power. This turn of events is from God. God is totally in charge, just as he is always totally in charge. Saul is losing control, but God isn't. That's what, that's what this phrase means. One of the things we note along the way is that nature abhors a vacuum. And that's as true in the spiritual universe as it is in the material universe. When the Holy Spirit vacates a person or is absent, evil spirits will rush in. By choosing evil, disobedience to God, Saul has created within his own being both the invitation for demonic infestation, the conditions for them to thrive, as well as the legal right for them to stay. And once an evil spirit is attached to someone, what does it do? What do all evil spirits do? In a, in a word, they torment. That's what they do. Uh, addictions, compulsive thoughts, and compulsive behaviors, physical and emotional things that torment us. These are the things that demons love, the conditions under which they thrive, and the purpose of such torment is to drive us through fear and pain into deeper and deeper into thought patterns and behaviors that are self-destructive because it's the destruction of human beings that evil spirits are into. Now, spiritual explanations, uh, spiritual explanations of such conditions are almost never the only explanations. Spiritual explanations are almost never 
the only explanations. But we've gathered here in church to consider spiritual things, haven't we? I mean, just as an example of that, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins in order that we might be forgiven and receive eternal life. That's a spiritual explanation. Is it the only explanation of why Jesus died on the cross? No, of course it isn't. There are social explanations, historical explanations, all kinds of explanations. But we've gathered in church to consider the spiritual explanations, which are hardly ever the only explanations, but usually the most powerful explanations. Does that make sense? Okay. By the way, um, there's one thing that torments demons. Do you know what torments demons? Thanking, praising, and worshipping Jesus torments demons. Is Saul's situation irredeemable? Apparently not, because at the end of this chapter we read that this evil spirit regularly gets up and goes, leaving Saul. Saul can be rid of this thing if he so chooses. Also, later on in chapter 19, Saul is again filled in power with the Holy Spirit. And on that occasion, it's clear that a lot of inner healing goes on for Saul. However, with Saul, there is never any lasting repentance. No heartfelt turning back to God. No desire to be forgiven and live simply as God's person. And eventually, Saul will be driven through fear of man, to take his own life. Saul's inability to trust God turns out to be fatal. Uh, In this morning's passage, we notice that, yet again, it is not Saul who initiates and problem solves, but again, it is his servants. It is his servants who diagnose the problem in verse 15. It is his servants who suggest a solution in verse 16. And it is his servants who put that solution into practice in verses 18 and 19. And so, thanks to the initiative of the servants in verses 18 and following, we meet David. And in verses 18 and 19, we learn things about David here in story 2 that story 1 and story 3 also tell us. These things we have in common with the other two stories. David is the son of Jesse of Bethlehem. He's a brave man and a warrior. He is a fine-looking bloke. The Lord is with him. He's been filled in power with the Holy Spirit. And he is a shepherd. An important thing to note, but I made comment on that last week. Here in story 2, we hear two things about David that we didn't know from story one and that aren't included in story three either. And those two things are these. Firstly, David is articulate and secondly, David is a musician. And both of these things are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's not to suggest for a moment that David wasn't naturally articulate or naturally musical. I'm sure he was both naturally musical and spiritually musical. I'm sure he had both of those abilities. I'm sure that they were both evident and being honed and developed before he was filled with the Spirit. But you see, spiritual explanations are almost never the only explanations. But we've gathered here in church to consider spiritual things. 
Ultimately, whether we consider these gifts natural gifts or supernatural gifts, they're gifts from God. They're gifts from God to David. And God is spirit. And we worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, One of the fantastic things about belonging to a church for me um, is witnessing young people grow up in the presence of the spirit. Uh, We are people of the spirit. We are the body of Christ. That's right. We are the body of Christ and his spirit is with us. I I grew up in a non-church family. And growing up in my non-church family, um, I had piano lessons. And as a kid and as a teenager, I thought I could play the piano. But when I came to faith in Christ, age 24, and joined this church, I suddenly realized I can't play the piano. Not even close. And as a young adult in the early 90s in this church, I was simply amazed by the young adults I was meeting at church. Young adults who'd grown up in the church and who knew Jesus. And this is how it struck me at the time. The image that came to me at that time was that they were beautiful trees. Flourishing and competent, bearing all kinds of good fruit. Trees that had somehow grown up in some sort of outstanding environment that made them both lovely in character and resilient to damage. Now, in the Bible, the presence of the Holy Spirit in people is associated with ability. All kinds of abilities, artistic gifts, administrative and leadership skills and gifts, wisdom and understanding, and all matters spiritual and material. The spirit in people matures their characters and makes them winsome. They, they turn into these loving, patient, kind, humble, merciful, forgiving, trusting, loyal people. The Holy Spirit makes such a difference to people, you'd be tempted to believe just on the evidence of your eyes alone that human beings couldn't really live without him. And actually, that is the point. David is filled with the Spirit of God. He's going to stand out. And we too are the people of the Spirit, the same gift in the same measure. And we too are going to stand out. Now, here's an interesting question. Where are we going to stand out? Or at least I find it interesting. An answer is suggested in the text, verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. God must have a really good sense of humor, huh? Hiding David in the inner circle of David's worst enemy. For David and Saul truly are enemies. The real king of Israel serving in the court of a man pretending to be the king of Israel. A man who's quite happy to kill anyone who challenges him and their family and friends for good measure. And likewise, God regularly places his people in the darndest of places. I mean, this isn't an isolated incident, is it? And we will see as the story unfolds that David trusts God 
even in the presence of his enemies. He trusts God to fulfill the purposes he has for him. And David serves faithfully, attending to whatever work the Lord has given him. Likewise, God has hidden us in the world, the place where Satan lives and works. And we too are not yet revealed. Verse 23. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. What do evil spirits hate? Well, evil spirits hate God's presence because God is holy and they are not. And they hate praise and worship. Um, Some take it here that David was singing as well as playing the lyre. The text allows for either possibility. It doesn't require that he was singing. I have to admit that in my reading, this is just me, the text doesn't require it, but, but for me, I kind of assume that David was singing as well as playing his instrument. And certainly there is a tradition within Judaism that understands that David's songs were accompanied by lyrics. And this is because we all know, not from the story so far, but we all know from the Bible that that David was a singer-songwriter and he wrote songs from a young age. And nearly half of the 150 psalms in the book of Psalms are attributed to David. And those psalms are, of course, the lyrics to songs. They're also poems, they're also prayers. David, the singer-songwriter. It is expected in the Bible that praise and worship music, such as the Psalms, ushers in the presence of God. Just as an example, we we might think of the book of Revelation, we might think of the book of Revelation as some final and cataclysmic final battle between Jesus and his people and Satan and his demons. But have you realized that the book of Revelations is actually a musical? People are constantly bursting into song. God's people are constantly bursting into song, singing, worshipping, and praying in the form of song. As the people of the Spirit, praise and worship, singing and praying are things we ought to attend to as, it, as healing, as stuff that uh, uh, makes us truly human and delivers us from evil. Okay, so... David is a shepherd. He's good at shepherding. We we learned that last week. In the ancient world, folk would not have considered that an important qualification for being king, but we know differently. Today we find out that David is a musician. In the contemporary world, his contemporary world, folk would not have considered that an important qualification for being king. But now, actually, we can see and understand that it is. A A person who can lead in worship can heal his nation. And all of this prepares us for Jesus. David, as God's anointed king, exercises authority over the spiritual forces of darkness. It's a kind of contingent authority. It's not a final authority. The demons flee from David when he plays his lyre, but that is a form of authority. This authority that David has in David's life is perhaps somewhat incidental. But when we come to Jesus, it's central. 
King Jesus, the true king to which David points, has total authority over every dominion, power, and authority. He has power over the forces of darkness. He has authority over demons and unclean spirits, entities that can make our lives hell. But Jesus has the power to save us. Jesus is loving. Jesus is willing. And Jesus is able. Jesus is the true king, the one who saves us completely from all that destroys. Come, Lord Jesus.